You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as we continue in our series that we've entitled The Invisible War, a fight against the devil, the world, and the flesh. And uh, while you're turning to Genesis 3, I just want to see a show of hands. How many of you have seen uh, the show My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with uh, David Letterman? Anybody else in here seen that? Okay, several of you. Um, I was actually watching an episode a couple months ago uh, where he was interviewing Barack Obama. And at one point, there was a line that jumped out to me that I wanted to share with you where Obama said, and I quote, one of the biggest challenges that we face with democracy is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. Now, clearly Obama was referring to Donald Trump and the alt-right, but it's important to note that there are people on the other side of the aisle um, who are sounding the exact same alarm. Uh, For example, Republican Senator Jeff Flake recently said, in 2017, we saw a year in which the truth, objective, empirical, evidence-based truth, was more battered and abused than any other in the history of our country at the hands of the most powerful figure in our government. Um, The Washington Post, which uh, hardly is an unbiased source, granted, uh, apparently has what they call a fact checker. And as of Monday, according to their sources, President Trump during his presidency has made 13,435 false or misleading claims. To which, in response to this, President Trump has tweeted, We should have a contest as to which of the networks, plus CNN, not including Fox, is the most dishonest, corrupt, and or distorted in his political coverage of your favorite president, me. They are all bad. Winner to receive the fake news trophy. Uh, Needless to say, we are in the middle of a society that many are referring to as a post-truth society. A society where it is becoming harder than ever before to discern the difference between what is true and what is false. And as we discovered last week, this actually plays right into the hand of the devil and his main strategy against us. A strategy, as we talked about last week, more than being about demonization or disaster or disease, is about deception, about distorting the truth. Or as we said last week, and I think we can put it on the screen for you, the devil's main strategy against you and me is to sell us on deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. I think about this picture of soldiers of Nazi Germany, um, which was just released. Nobody had ever laid eyes on this picture until this week. And what you're looking at is a group of army officers uh, in Nazi Germany, and they are at a resort that literally sat right next to a concentration camp in Auschwitz. And as you can see here, um, these men who also, by the way, were living with their wives and children at this resort, um, they're sitting here together, and there's a guy in the front with an accordion, and as you can see, they're laughing and they're enjoying themselves, all while next to them, millions of men, women, and children 
are being tortured and murdered. And we look at a picture like this and we say, well, how is something like that possible? And the reason it's possible is because these are men, along with an entire country, that were sold on deceitful ideas about nation and race that played to disordered desires for power and control and money and prosperity that were then normalized in their society to where all of that that was happening in the Holocaust was just normal and common to them. And though that's an extreme example, again, what you need to understand today, guys, is listen, this is the devil's M.O., Like this is his primary strategy against you and me to masquerade a lie as reality or to twist the truth in such a way that we no longer, no longer know which end is up. And because the devil is a master at this, I mean, he's been at it for a very long time. Some of you are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's research that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you'll become an expert in it. Uh, The devil has been at this strategy, not just for thousands of hours, but thousands of years. And therefore, because of that, I just want to spend one more Sunday talking about and studying his schemes so that we can fight and stand firm against his attacks. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that in mind, look with me in Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, and just to set the context for you, God has created the world. It's beautiful. It's rhythmic. Everything is as it should be. Adam and Eve are in a perfect relationship with one another. And with God, all the ingredients are there for human flourishing. However, look what happens. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the snake, a.k.a. the devil, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And I just want to stop there and point out that word crafty in the Hebrew literally means cunning or deceitful. So think back last week to John chapter 8 where Jesus said, when the devil lies, he is speaking his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. So like, again, like that's who the devil is. Like in his very essence, he cannot not lie. Like he is a deceiver. And therefore, when he shows up on the scene in order to deceive Eve, the first thing he does, if you notice, is he begins to question God's word. In verse 1, it says that he showed up to the woman and he said this, Did God really say that you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Do you see how subtle this is? Did God really say? It's the same thing he does to you and me. Did God really say he loved you? Did God really say that you're forgiven? Did God really say that you can trust him, that he will provide for you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you? So important that you note today that oftentimes, listen, whenever the devil attacks you, he will do so with a very simple, very subtle question. A question that will cause you to doubt God's word because when there is doubt, there is the potential for deceit. And when there's a potential for deceit, there is a potential for disobedience. And when there is a potential for disobedience, there is always the potential for destruction and death on multiple layers. And that's exactly what we see if you keep reading. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. So now this is just a blatant lie. For God knows that when you eat from, eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also, what's the word? Desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. In verse 7, look at the consequences of their disobedience. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is shame. At one time, they were naked and unashamed, but now they're like, oh, something's wrong with me. I need a cover. I need to self-protect. I need to project an image of myself that's not exactly corresponding with reality. So there's shame. And then verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Right Now, God knows where they are, but he wants them to realize where they are. He wants them to have self-awareness. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So now there's not just shame, there's fear, there's anxiety. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. Like, it's her fault. The woman that you put here, right, that you gave to me. Actually, it's not even the woman's fault. Like, God, it's your fault because you created her and you gave her to me. She gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. So now there's not just shame. We don't just have fear, but we also have guilt. And we know there's guilt because there's blame shifting, right? Like, Adam's not taking responsibility for his own sin. He's blaming the woman or actually blaming God. And by the way, I would just say this. This is the root of many problems in marriage. Uh, from someone who's done uh, uh, marriage counseling with others, and Adam, we'd say the same thing. A lot of times couples will show up and they are blaming the other person for why their marriage is a mess. What you need to realize, when you show up in your marriage, you both bring st- uh, something incredibly destructive to that marriage, which is your sinfulness. All right? And so what we see here, though, is Adam, rather than taking ownership, he feels guilt, he blames shifts. It's the woman you gave me. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, don't miss this. The snake deceived me, and I ate. So notice right out of the gate, when the devil crawls into the picture for the purpose of bringing ruin to Adam and Eve's soul, he comes, listen, not with a stick, not with a gun, not with a weapon, not with an army, but with an idea. More specifically, with a deceptive idea that plays to Eve's disordered desire, and then because Eve takes the bait, it brings sin and with it shame and guilt and fear and all kinds of dysfunction that is being normalized in our society today. And this is really bad news. But the good news is the story doesn't end there. If you look with me at verse 14, look how it continues. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, or the word can be translated there, I will put a fight, I will put a war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And he, and I would circle that word, he, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Does anybody here know who God is referring to whenever he's talking about he? It's Jesus. Yeah. And by the way, if it's your first time to church, if a pastor ever asks a question, uh, like, what's the answer? Just say Jesus. And nine times out of ten, you're going to get it right. (laughs) And so it's Jesus. He's going to come, right? He is the snake crusher who one day God says, I'm going to send into the world for the purpose of waging war against the great deceiver. And though the devil, he says here, is going to wound Jesus, Jesus will put the devil to death so that we can, in Christ, despite our sin and our brokenness, enjoy the life we were created to experience with him. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, just notice when we look at the story, now we're beginning to get our heads around the nature of the lies that the devil spins. And I want you to hear this, okay? Like here, here there's, there's really like three different types of lies that appeal to kind of three different categories here we see in this story. And the first category of lies is around this question of who is God? 
The next category is around, uh, the next lie is around the category of, of who am I? And then we see, right, that category number three is around the question of what is the good life? And so when the devil lies, right, he attacks, you see, theology, identity, and morality. And that is all right here in the text. For example, who is God? Well, according to verse 5, the devil says to Eve, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open. Translation, God is not who he claims to be. You can't trust this God. He's being dishonest with you. He's holding out on you. And guys, this is deception at its best. As we talked about in our God Has a Name series, as A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. Because if you're not thinking about God rightly, it is going to lead you down a path of destruction. And because the devil knows this is true, he distorts who God is. Rather than painting God as a good and generous God, he paints him as a greedy God who just doesn't care. Next, we see the lie around the question of who am I? Like the devil says in verse 5, God knows that whenever you eat of this, you will be like him. Translation, you're not like him. You're not a human being made in his image. You're not special in his eyes. You're not made with an incredible potential as one made in his image, nor are you made with limitations as one who is made from the dust. Therefore, listen to this. Here's the lie. Take control of your destiny. You be who you think you need to be. You define for yourself reality. You transcend and transgress all limitations. Go with your gut. Define for yourself what you think is right and wrong, and then just pursue that with all of your heart. The final lie is around this question of what is the good life, which we see in verse 6. It says, when the woman saw the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and she ate. Translation, Ignore all of these other trees in the garden that have God's full blessing and yield life and take from the one tree that does not have God's blessing and will actually yield death. The way this looks in our world today is pursue the American dream. Run after this new, bright and shiny thing. Build bigger barns. Get more stuff. Consume this. Look at that. And trust me, trust me, it won't bring death. It'll bring life. It will make you happy. These are the devil's go-to lies. And there's go-to lies, not just here in Genesis 3, but in our life today. Lies that are meant to distort who God is. You can't trust God. God's abandoned you. He's far off. He's, He's impossible to please. Lies that distort who you are. What our culture will tell us today and what the devil wants to tell you is that you are either what you do, you are what you have, or you are what other people say about you. And therefore, whenever you don't do enough, or whenever you don't have enough, or whenever you don't get enough likes on social media or enough pats on the back, what happens? He begins to get in your ear and say, see, you're worthless. You're a nobody. You're a failure. It's over. Lies that distort the reality of the good life. You know what you need to be happy? You need more money. You need a different spouse. You need to be able to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. You need a different car. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And listen, because this is true, because the devil even right now is in your ear feeding you these lies, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is how do we keep from falling prey to this? Like, like how do we, unlike Adam and Eve, stand firm against the devil's strategy against us? And fortunately, Jesus shows us the way. So if you will, look with me 
in Luke chapter 4. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. And just to set the context for you here, just as God had promised in Genesis 3.15, he has sent Jesus into the world to reverse the curse of sin, to live a perfect sinless life we could never live, to die a death on the cross we deserve to die for our sins, to eventually raise from the dead. But before any of that happens, when we come to Luke 4, what we have here, guys, is our first recorded showdown, our first recorded battle between the great deceiver, the devil, and Jesus, the Messiah. And what I want you to know of this is because the devil is a one-trick pony, the same strategy that he uses against Adam and Eve is the same strategy he's going to try to use here against Jesus. But if you notice, the results are very different. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, so there's that, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days was tempted. I just want to stop right there, actually, and I want you to focus on verse 1, that Jesus was led into the wilderness. And I want you to just think about this for a moment, because some of you here today, you feel like, like Jesus, that you are in a wilderness, which in the Bible represents this desolate place where there seems to be no fruit, no water, no life, just thorns and thistles. And if that's where you are in this season of your life, let me tell you what the devil's going to get. Here's what he's going to try to convince you of. The devil's going to try to convince you that God has left you. And you know what the reality is? When we look at Luke 4, if you're in the wilderness, oftentimes it's not that God has left you there, but he has led you there. And which means he has gone before you before you even got there. Which means he is with you in the wilderness right now. And what I just want to say is, is this, is that if you will continue to follow Jesus in the wilderness, if you will not turn away, if you will continue to trust him, what you will discover is if you will lean on him and you feel like you have nothing else, is God will do something in you and through you so beautiful that you could barely even imagine it. In the Song of Solomon, there's this great verse in, in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 5, where it says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on their lover? It's an awesome image. If you will lean on your lover, Jesus Christ, in the wilderness, God will do some transformative work so amazing in you, people won't even be able to recognize you because it's going to be so beautiful and so magnificent. So if you're in the wilderness, that's just a word for you this morning. Continue to trust the Lord. If you're in a season of death, trust that there is a resurrection on the other side of that if you will just lean in. God's grace is sufficient for you, and his power will be made perfect in your weakness. So complete side note. Jesus led into the wilderness by the Spirit, verse 2, where for 40 days and 40 nights he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing because he was fasting during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. How many of you in here have ever fasted for a day before? Okay, several of you. Well, you just missed your blessing for owning it up in public, so you should have just kept your hand down. Um, just kidding. Um, so if you fast for a day, you know that your body gets angry. If you fast for a week from food and water, your body goes into full starvation mode. Doctors tell us if you fast from food and drink for 40 days, your body will literally begin to eat itself. And this is where Jesus is. So he's very weak. He's very vulnerable. And because the devil knows this, he comes at Jesus. And look at verse 3. The devil said to him, if you really are the son of God. Now, what is that about? 
Well, if you've been reading in Luke's gospel, you know that in chapter 3, before Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized in the Jordan River. And when he came out, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and that God from heaven, God the Father, declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So what does the devil do? Right out of the gate, he begins to question God's word. Exact same thing we see him doing in Genesis 3. He begins to question Jesus' theology and question his identity. If you really are the Son of God. See how subtle that is? Then, look what, he, look what he tells him to do. Turn the stones into bread. You know you're hungry. Just do it. To which Jesus answered by quoting from his favorite book of the Bible, as far as we know, because he quoted it all the time from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil, verse 5, then led him up on a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Um, isn't it interesting that Jesus here doesn't actually call uh, Satan a liar on this one? He doesn't say, well, you don't own all the kingdoms of the world. He says, I own all these and I'll give them to you. In verse 7, he says, all you have to do is worship me and it'll all be yours. And Jesus, again, for, from Deuteronomy, says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, the devil then led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, there it is again. He said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Here's what the devil's about to do. Get this, guys. He's about to quote scripture. Do you realize like the devil knows the Bible better than most of us know the Bible? He's got the Bible memorized. Why? Because what he will often do is try to take this word and twist it in order to help you justify your sinful actions. He will give you 98% truth and hold back the 2% that matters so that he can lead you into destruction. But Jesus ain't buying it. So here comes the devil quoting scripture from Psalm 91. He says, um, throw yourself down for it is written. God will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered once again, Deuteronomy for the win. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. So Jesus is the man who silenced Satan. He left him until an opportune time. Now, clearly there is a lot in there that we could get at. But in short, this in Luke 4 is a retelling of Genesis 3. What I want you to notice is everywhere that Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds. Everywhere that Adam and Eve failed, everywhere that you have failed and I have failed in our fight against the devil and his lies, Jesus succeeds. And how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, if you notice, Jesus is not here screaming at the devil at the top of his lungs. He's not calling down fire from heaven. He's not holding up a cross and like throwing holy water at him. Right? You don't see any of that. But rather, what do you see? Jesus is calm and he's confident and he's just this non-anxious presence. And when we find Jesus, what is he doing? Well, one, he's fasting. He's also, we know, meditating on Scripture. We also know that he's praying because he's walking full of the Holy Spirit. And please hear me, guys. If you want to stand firm against the devil and his lies, the same has to be true of you. This is why... Um, if you have been here for more than two months, you should recognize this paradigm that I think we can put on the screen for you. This is called the Intentional Spiritual Formation Paradigm. And this is why we continue as pastors to bring you back to this over and over and over again. It's why we're structuring our entire church around this. Because this is how, like Jesus, you fight against the devil and his attack on you. Bless you. 
And so if you notice, by looking at the top of this paradigm, first, if we're going to fight against the devil and his lies, it starts with teaching. Or another way of saying this, it starts with immersing ourselves in the truth about who God is and what he has done for us and how that shapes who we are and how we live. And this is exactly what we see in Luke 4, where every time the devil comes at Jesus with a lie, what does Jesus come back with? With truth from the word of God. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Why does Jesus know this? Because he knows that spiritual warfare primarily is about fighting lies with the truth. It's about replacing destructive images and ideas with images and ideas that are good and beautiful and true. It is about, in the words of the Apostle Paul, learning to take every thought captive so that rather than being enslaved by lies, we can be set free by the truth as it's defined by God. And I just want to say from an insider critique, we are not taking this seriously enough. Um, I grew up in a conservative Southern Baptist home where for years I thought that PG meant pure garbage. And true story. And so, um, you know, I remember, for example, my dad, uh, when he came at me, um, he would, well, one example is this book, Dancing with Demons. Um, he would come and he would give it to me and he'd say, Jared, Every bit of rock and roll, including Christian rock and roll, is used by the devil as one of his greatest tools. And in this book, by the way, um, that it talks about from 1989, Amy Grant is actually on this list, which was a Christian artist, and Michael W. Smith at the time, which is interesting. So, um, But if Amy Grant came on the radio and it's like, baby, baby, you know, my dad would be like, nope, we're going to Sandy Patty, right? And so like, we're just going to shut that down. And I got the Jesus Freak album by DC Talk, Christian Band. My dad was like, freak's a secular word, so we're getting rid of that CD. And so... Um, He's like, okay, it's great. Which, by the way, he had he did buy me a Beach Boys tape, which is interesting. Could have, could have DC Talk, or could have DC Talk, could have the Beach Boys. Um, but you know, the thing is, I kind of look back at my upbringing and I laugh at it a little bit and kind of poke at it. But here's the thing: though my parents uh, did not get everything right, one of the things they got right, and I think their generation got right, that we often miss, is the effect that lies have on our mind. Uh, we had a saying in our house: "Garbage in." garbage out. And typically what that applied to was television. And what's interesting to me though is here we are now in 2019 and there's times where I will walk out in the foyer and I'm not trying to eavesdrop on anybody, but literally I will hear someone talking about a Game of Thrones episode right after we got done worshiping. And I'm just like, man, I'm like, holy cow, like we are on a totally different end of the spectrum than we were from our parents. And I get it, like some of us grew up in incredibly legalistic backgrounds, which that's evil in itself. And so we've like tried to swing the pendulum the other way. And a lot of us are like, man, I just don't want to be a Pharisee. And I get that. Like, but from my experience, just again, insider critique, most of us are really far from being Pharisees. Sometimes I wish we had more Pharisees because they're really good givers. But, <laughs> but we are very, very far from my interpretation of what a Pharisee really is. Because for most of us, we are the stuff we are listening to and watching and reading and filling our minds with, guys, I'm telling you, they are incredibly destructive images and ideas that are being lodged into your brain and doing damage to your soul. And we have got to start taking this stuff seriously. Everything that enters into your mind has an effect on us for good or evil. What we give our minds access to does, in fact, shape who you become for better or for worse. And I think in an entertainment culture like ours, this is more important than ever before because I was reading a statistic this past week that said the average American is in front of a TV for four to five hours a day. The average millennial is on their phone for five hours a day. 
Which means, when you think about the stuff that we're putting in, we're spending a lot of time of our days filling our mind with stuff that is cutting us off from the person and the presence of God. And we're spending maybe a few hours a week filling our mind with truths about God. And I just want you to know, if that is where you are, guys, I don't care who you are or where you come from, you do that long enough, you're going to begin to look more like the devil than you are like Jesus. And so this is incredibly important, that like Jesus, we see in Luke 4, we turn our attention to God over and over and over again, and we think deeply and well of him. This is a key piece in learning to fight the devil in his lives. But here's the thing. Though getting ideas into your head or the right ideas into your head is a good starting point, it's not enough. Because as we all know, it's one thing to think truth in your mind. It's another thing to want to do truth in your heart. The reality is what we want to do will always override what we know to be true. And because of that, we need to engage in practices, as you see on the screen, or as it's been called in church history, spiritual disciplines that help us internalize the truth of God and move truths from just being in our heads to in our hearts, which again, we see in Luke chapter four, beginning at the story, right? What do we see Jesus doing again? He's fasting. Do you realize fasting is literally a way for you to embody the truth? It's a way for you to starve your flesh so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus in Luke 4 quoting scripture. How did he do that? Because Jesus practiced scripture memorization. Do you realize Jesus, the Bible says in Luke, he grew in stature and wisdom, which means whenever Jesus was born, it's not like the matrix where like God just like put a computer chip into the back of his head. He like all of a sudden had all this information downloaded. Jesus had to memorize scripture just like you have to memorize scripture. Right? But this was a practice. It was a discipline in his life. We see him practice silence and solitude and praying and all of these other spiritual disciplines Jesus took very seriously. And why? Please get this. Because for Jesus, he understood that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. He understood that spiritual disciplines are how we internalize the truth of God for the purpose of withstanding the attacks of the devil. And it's so important that you get this today because there are some of you in here who you are addicted to pornography. There are some of you in here who have a hair trigger temper. Just, maybe it's just boiling underneath the surface. There's some of you who are constantly comparing and, and, and you're in constant competition with others. You've got all sorts of hangups in your life. And listen, how do we get over those things? Not by just saying, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop. Like, guys, you, realize you don't have the capacity to just stop. If you did, you would have turned it off by, by now, like a light switch. You don't have the capacity to do that, but you know what you do have the capacity to do? You do have the capacity tomorrow morning to wake up and read a psalm. Like you do have the capacity to start, as I've been trying to start every morning, by just saying, okay, God, like what would be pleasing to you today? I'm not going to try to boil the the whole ocean, but I'll try to just do the next right thing that's in front of me. You do have the capacity to get involved in community and to sit around a table with your missional community for the purpose of sharing a meal. You do have the capacity tomorrow morning when you're commuting to school or work to rather than listening to junk, to, to listen to a, 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 you know, a good podcast or worship music. Like you can't heal your father wound. You understand? Like you can't heal that, but you can set aside time to be alone with God. You can create space to listen to him, to align your heart with his. You can read the New Testament. You can, for example, take five minutes before you go to bed tonight and every night and just thank God for 24 things from the past 24 hours, just practicing gratitude because you can't be anxious and you can't be bitter and grateful at the same time. You can do these things and listen, you can confess sin. 
you can you can be vulnerable in front of others. And look, if you will do this, not overnight, not overnight, but over time, you will begin to internalize the truth, which as a result will make you more like Jesus himself. And you will experience the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, goodness, self-control, all of that. So we need teaching. We need practice. Third, what we see from Luke chapter 4 is that we need community. And some of you, I know you're smart. You're like, ah, wait a minute. Like, where did you get this one at? Because when I look at Luke 4, I don't see community anywhere. And that's the point. Anytime you see the devil attack, whether it's from Eve to Jesus, the person is alone. This is why in Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has this crazy statement where there's an unrepentant sinner in the church. And Paul says, because this person refuses to repent of their sin, I want you to give them over to the devil. And if you're reading this, you're like, okay, that's an interesting statement. Like, how do we do that? And you know what Paul says? Here's how you give someone to the devil. You put them outside the church. Because when you're removed from the church, when you're not walking in deep community with others, you literally are opening yourself up to an attack from the devil himself. In a lot of that, I'm just telling you guys, we could have set this church up any way that we wanted to when we planted it seven years ago. And we started with a missional community with six people in a living room learning to do life together around Jesus. We did that because community is absolutely essential to your development. I love that you're here on Sunday morning, but I'm telling you, this is not enough for you. It's just not enough. You've got to have brothers or sisters in Christ that are around you. So if you're not in a missional community, get in a missional community. If you're not in a DNA, get involved in a DNA, which are groups of three men or three women who are focusing on discipleship, nurture, and accountability. You need to get plugged in. I was thinking this past week about the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan. How many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan before? A lot of you. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And, and here's a scene, right, which is about the invasion of Normandy where we, you know, the, the, you know we, we, we stormed the beaches of Normandy for the sake of taking back the, the enemy's land. And, and we're sitting there, and so here are these troops, as you see on the screen. They crash the beach. They're being shot at, right? The enemy's trying to destroy them. And what you will discover in the movie is there's not one single person who says, hey, you guys go ahead. I'm going to try to do this one on my own. I think I've got this. You know why? Because they know they're in a war. They know they need each other. We need to wake up to the reality that we are in a war and we need each other. You cannot do this on your own. As foolish as it would be for you to try to crash the beaches of Normandy all on your lonesome, it's even more crazy to think we could do it in the spiritual war that we're caught up in today. So get involved in community. Lastly, what I would say is if we're going to fight against the devil's attacks, we don't just need teaching and practice in community, but we desperately need the Holy Spirit, which you can see back on the screen. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led into the wilderness. Guys, if Christianity is just about this, showing up here once a week and sitting in a chair and listening to someone talk, like, you can do that on your own power. You can do it in your own power. But if Christianity really is about the fact that as soon as you step out of here, you're getting hit in the face with lies If Christianity, it really is true that we're caught up in the middle of a war right now, where as Peter says, there is a lion who is prowling around looking to devour you, then we desperately need the Holy Spirit. And when you think of the Holy Spirit, do not think of Star Wars. Don't think of some random force. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. 
The Spirit is not some force you yield. The Spirit is a person you have a relationship with. And that is why whenever you practice the spiritual disciplines, the reason that church churches throughout history call them spiritual dis- disciplines is because when you do this, you open yourself up to the Spirit. You open yourself up to experience more of a relationship with Him, which means you experience more and more of the empowering presence of God that you have to have in order to fight against the devil. And because that is true this week for our practice, as we learn to continue to f- and fight in this invisible war, as you know, as we've said, this is a practicing series. We do uh, three every year, and it's where we basically take something that we've learned and taught on here, and we practice it together as a missional community. And so you can see it on the screen. Um, this week, we're going to focus on the practice of Scripture memorization, um, reading and memorizing the Bible. And so you can actually go to our website, crossingparable.com forward slash practices, and everything I'm about to say, you can find in more detail here or on there. But here's what I want you to do today. When you meet with your missional communities, or whenever you meet with them throughout the week, One of the things we're asking our leaders to do is to lead you in a public reading of Scripture, which is talked about all through the Bible. And there's actually a video you can watch that your MC leaders will send you if you want to learn more about this. But we're going to encourage you to sit down together as a missional community and read Romans 8 together. And just different people can read it at different times, and you're just kind of remark on what the Spirit is saying to you. And then also what we're going to encourage you to do is we've shared with you online, and your leader will send it to you as well, four to five different um, uh, techniques for memorizing Scripture. Like, you cannot, guys, combat lies with truth if you don't know the truth. And so we're going to actually, just like Jesus did, learn to memorize the Scripture. And again, all of that will be online, and your leader will send it to you as well. To end, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul has this throwaway line about how he does not want the church to be unaware of the devil's schemes. And I just want you to know that my goal in this first two weeks of this series is to make sure that we expose the devil's schemes that you are aware to the fact there is a devil. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. And the way in which he is doing that is through lies. Um, I was talking to my wife last night about G.I. Joe. How many of you watched G.I. Joe growing up? Anybody? Several of you. You may remember at the end of G.I. Joe, they always had these lessons like, don't talk to strangers or don't pet a stray dog because it could have rabies. And, uh, and then uh, G.I. Joe would look and say, now you know, and what? No one is half the battle but it's only half the battle. No one's important, but it's only half the battle. You still have to fight. And the good news is today, listen, because of what Jesus has accomplished, you can stand against the devil in his lives with a calm and quiet confidence. I just want to read this over you and we'll end. Colossians chapter 2, just hear this today. Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins... In the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, whenever you were stuck in your old, sinful, zombie-like state, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us some of our sins. All of our sins. Past, present, future. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In other words, you had a warrant out for your arrest. Jesus canceled it and nailed it to the cross. And then listen to this, verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, of them triumphing over them by the cross. What a beautiful image that Jesus, when he was on the cross, hanging naked and in his humiliation, when the devil thought he had won, putting Jesus to disgrace, Jesus turned it around and used it for the defeat and disgrace of our greatest enemy. 
John Piper says it the best. I'll read this and we'll be done. In a lot of that verse, he says, When Christ died for our sins, Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had was stripped from his hand, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should perish with him forever. When Christ died, that accusation was nullified. All those who now entrust themselves to Christ will never perish. Satan cannot separate them from the love of God in Christ. This morning, I want us to meditate on our greatest weapon against the enemy, which is that gospel truth. And I want us to do it by embodying the gospel, by taking a piece of bread, dipping it in the juice, swallowing it and remembering who Christ is and what he's done for us. That In him, we are fully forgiven and that we have everything we need to defeat the attacks of the enemy. I want to say this, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're welcome to this. We have two stations in the front, two in the back, gluten-free option for you in the back. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like you have every reason to be terrified right now because you, you, you have no power to defeat the enemy. Like none. And he's coming at you. You have a real enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. And apart from Jesus Christ, he will accomplish that goal in your life. And so that I pray for some of you, maybe today the next step is, rather than coming and taking a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice, man, receive Jesus. What would keep you from that today? Receive Jesus. I don't have all my questions answered. Either do I. Well, I've still got a lot of crap I've got to get to. So do I. Jesus just wants you to come with the open hands of faith today and to receive him and know that he'll take you in. If you want more questions or you have more questions about that or want to know next steps, I'll be up here in the front. Adam, we'd love to talk with you. That being said, let's stand together as the band comes forward. I want to pray for us, and then we'll partake of communion and sing one more song. Father, I thank you for everyone who is here this morning, and I just pray that right now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will help us to take whatever truth we need to hear this morning, that you would apply it deeply to our hearts, that it would move from our head into the depths of our soul. I pray for someone who is here right now, that maybe they're believing the lie, that that they're unlovable, or that they're too sinful, or that they're too far gone, or maybe that they're just too good for you, Jesus, um, that they don't even need you. Um, I pray that right now that you would just arrest our hearts, open our eyes, every single one of us to see you as you are. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and as he sings, amen. Amen.